Our scripture today comes from the book of John, chapter 6, verses 60 to the end of the chapter in verse 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to them, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed And have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, one of the twelve who was to betray him. This is God's word for us. Father, we ask for your blessing now on this preaching of your word. We are grateful you are a God who speaks. You have been kind to speak to us over the last or three weeks or so since we gathered in person when we have opened your word in private and listened to you and meditated upon it. And yet, Lord, we confess again today that there is something you accomplished through the public preaching of your word that is distinctly different. And I ask on this day that as Chris prayed earlier, the authority of King Jesus would be clearly heard and felt and submitted to and embraced by my soul and every single person who is listening to me right now. Lord, you also know Uh, the kids in this room who were so sad that they couldn't go back to King's Kids today. We pray for your comfort for their young hearts. And we ask that you would plant seeds even through what they hear while they are coloring. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Lord does things like that, you know. Speaking as one who grew up in the church, he plants good seeds, parents, even when you think they are not paying any attention. I dare say, brothers and sisters, that it really does seem like the worst thing you can do these days to someone is offend them. I'm in a culture where victimhood is the new morality. I apparently have an inalienable right (laughs) 
to not hear or experience anything that strikes me as offensive or hateful. If I'm offended, that justifies my anger toward you. If I'm offended, that excuses whatever actions I see fit to take. And if I'm offended, I'm entitled to use whatever means necessary to make you stop or rally my social media following to shame you into silence. And at root, that is not a tolerance problem, okay? That is a truth problem. What do I mean by that? Well, truth, hang with me here, okay? Truth has become the handmaiden of our passions. It's, it's the construct now of our desires, and, and that's been aided and abetted by this absolute autonomy of the individual. So what do we say? What do we hear? There is no normative or objective standard outside of us. There is only what you want to believe and what I want to believe. And when our, our subjective definitions of the truth inevitably what? <laughs> Collide. Whoever shouts the loudest wins. That's, that's the world we live in right now. But as we recognize that, we need to realize, even as Christians, we're all prone to accept something as true, not based on whether it actually is true, but based on whether we want it to be true. Whether we like it. Whether it affirms the things that we want to be affirmed. Examples. I don't really care whether it's wise for me to watch that movie. I want to see it, so I'm going to tell my parents, it's fine. (laughs) Or I don't really care what God says about my gender and sexuality. I know who I want to be. I know how I want to live. So I'm going to surround myself with supportive people who will tell me exactly what I want to hear. What is all of that the product of, friends? It's the inevitable result of severing ourselves from our creator. Okay, the God who reveals the truth. Why? Because he is the truth. And and until our relationship with him is restored, this is what we need to recognize. The truth will always feel offensive. Always. Because it's what? It's pushing and prodding us to confess something we hate to admit. And it's really simple, quite frankly. He is God and we are not. (laughs) And that is why Jesus' words, well, they rarely went over well. And not just with the crowds, but, but even with his closest followers. And the scripture that we just read, the end of chapter six, it, it comes on the heels of a very long conversation between Jesus and people around him. And it centers on his self-revelation in verse 32. Verse 35, rather. 
Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's the main point of the whole chapter. Notice Jesus is not putting himself forward as one religious option among many for you to choose, friend. He's not, hi, I have a table at the expo as well. Come to my table. (laughs) No, what what is Jesus doing when he says that? I'm the bread of life. He is saying there is no life apart from exclusive dependence on the author of life. That's what he's saying. And so once again, we see that Jesus never lets anybody come to him on their own terms. He defines the terms and he leaves us and you with with a simple choice. What's the choice? Will you believe him or not? It's a simple choice. Will you cling to him as your only source of life? Or are you going to keep chasing a life of your own making? How you respond to Jesus, this is really important, is determined by how you respond to his words. Because it's through his words that he reveals to us who he is and confronts us with that choice. So, The last part of John 6 really does tell us exactly what we need to know about Jesus' words. But do not divorce that from his person because it's through his words that he tells us who he is and he confronts us with that choice. Will you believe me or will you not? So, several things this text says about the words of Jesus. Here's the first. The words of Jesus are offensive to the pride of men. Look at verse 16. The crowd of Jesus' disciples or followers say either to themselves or to one another, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? You know, enigmas abounded in Jesus' words especially for those who who couldn't perceive their true spiritual meaning. Case in point, verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Say what? (laughs) But, But you need to know, friend, the emphasis here in verse 60 is not on something that's hard to understand, but on something that's hard to accept. Okay, it's not on something that is unclear, but rather something that's hard to swallow and is deeply offensive. What, what was offensive about Jesus' words? All kinds of things. Okay, they, they were offended by Jesus' spiritual focus. What it is here is one, free food, deliverance from Roman oppression. They, they were offended by Jesus' refusal to, to comply with the dictates of human reason. You know, what did they say to him? Why why should we believe your claim to deity when we know your mom and dad and they're standing over there? Uh, Hello. You know, they they were offended by by Jesus' claim to have a life-giving power in himself that was greater than their revered forefather Moses. And they were offended by the scandal of being told to eat his flesh and drink his blood. I mean, so a, a good teacher? Well, maybe. 
It's kind of confusing, but, but this exclusive giver of life business, yeah, I do not think so. I'm not feeling it. To which Jesus says, you think my teaching is offensive. Look at verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Jesus knew, friends, that the path, the only path, home to heaven, was a path of suffering and crucifixion. He knew his ascension would entail that. And so if the Jews were scandalized by his, his claim just to be the Messiah, the Son of God sent from the Father to make right everything our sin had made wrong, how much more are they going to be scandalized by a crucified Messiah? That's what he's saying. And if they'd realized the full impact of his words, they would have thought a crucified Messiah, that is ridiculous. Jesus, that is deeply offensive. Why? Because the Messiah isn't going to be crucified. The anointed deliverer of Yahweh doesn't get taken out. He reigns in power. He's going to destroy our enemies, starting with Caesar. Crucified Messiah. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 22. For Jews demand signs. And Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, an utter folly to Gentiles. The the true gospel, friend, is terribly offensive. It was back then, and, and you know what? It hasn't softened since then. The true gospel, it's terribly offensive. Why? Let's count the reasons. The gospel is offensive because it says I am accountable to someone other than myself. Namely, the God who created me. And that because I have willfully and repeatedly violated his commands, I deserve to die. That does not make me feel very good about myself. The gospel is offensive because it says I can't earn my way back into God's good graces. That nothing I do is good enough. Only Jesus can make me right with God. That's offensive. The the gospel is offensive because it says there are things God is doing in the universe that defy the logic of human reason and wisdom. Why why did my child die? Why why do I have chronic pain? Why, Why am I still single? Why would God allow himself to be brutally murdered by his enemies? It's the greatest act of evil ever, ever committed in the history of the world, right? Far exceeds any act of evil, even the greatest act ever done to us. And yet God used it for the greatest conceivable good. That offends human wisdom. The gospel's offensive because it says, I'm not my own. (laughs) My body, my money, my time, my gifts and abilities, my kids. If, if you're a Christian, you're, you're a slave of Christ. You've been bought with a price. Jesus isn't a roommate with whom you negotiate, Christian. He's a master to whom you submit. <laughs> That's offensive. And the gospel's offensive because it says this world is not our home. Think about that. 
It, it calls us to embrace a, a purpose for life that, that makes little to no sense to your friends, to your coworkers, maybe to your immediate family, your brother or sister. It, it looks foolish. You're, you're living for a day that's yet to come, for, for a glory we have yet to see. You're, you're walking by faith as an exile in the world because you're a citizen of heaven? Well, that's kind of offensive. Friend, if you, don't, if you don't perceive the offense of the gospel in the way that it contradicts and fiercely opposes all that we naturally hold dear, then one of two things is true. Either you don't understand the gospel or you have forgotten the comprehensive claim Christ crucified makes on absolutely every area of your life. And that means the most unloving thing you can do when you're talking to a non-Christian friend it is to soften the hard edges of the gospel, to make it more palatable. Don't, don't do that, brothers and sisters. Don't do that. Be honest and speak the truth. And let's add this. If, if you have felt the offense of the gospel, maybe you're feeling that right now, and rejected Jesus accordingly, well, well then I, I warn you, friend, to, to deny anything that doesn't make you feel good about yourself is to sign your own death warrant. That's offensive. Well, yeah, and it's true. Why? Because the God who created you is committed to something of infinitely greater weight than what makes us comfortable. He's committed to his glory. And, and because he's committed to his glory, his, his judgments will prevail. So here's what that means. Stop asking Jesus to affirm you. Start asking Jesus to rescue you from yourself. <laughs> That's what we need. His words are offensive to the pride of men. And we're part of that. Second thing we need to know about his words. The words of Jesus, praise God for this, right? On the heels of the first point. They bring life through the work of the spirit. So they're offensive to the pride of men, but what do they also do? They, they bring life through the work of the spirit. I, I, imagine for just a second, because Jesus sort of asked this question implicitly. Imagine you actually witnessed the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. You ever thought, oh, Lord, if only I could have been there. <laughs> if only I could have seen it. I mean, all my doubts, all my struggles following you, all my unbelief, all my not enough evidence, all my where are you, all that would just go away. Are you sure about that? Are you sure? Jesus' answer in verse 63 is a resounding no. Would not make following him one bit easier. Why not? Well, it's because the great obstacle to faith in Jesus isn't what we see with our eyes, but what we love in our hearts. Okay, listen to me. 
You don't need more evidence for God. You need to have your heart transformed by God. And only God, the Holy Spirit, can can overcome, deliver us from the pride in our hearts and enable us to see and savor Jesus as eminently worthy of our trust. That's, That's the whole point of verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. When Jesus talks about the flesh, let's understand the terms here, okay? In verse 63, he's talking about all the capacities of our human nature, all right? All the powers of your mind, your affections, your will. Jesus sees all of that, all that we know, all that we feel, all that we do. And what does he conclude? Not one bit of it, past, present, or future offers any ability to give you spiritual life or spiritual life to anybody around you. That's offensive. <laughs> yeah, it's humbling. We, we don't even get partial credit, right? The flesh, Jesus says, is of no help at all. And I don't like that, okay? Let's just go on a little rant here. I, that's offensive. That's hateful. Don't, I don't want to listen to that. Why not? Well, because I don't like feeling powerless. Do you? I certainly don't like being told there's nothing I can do to fix something that's wrong in my world. <laughs> I mean, what's it boil down to? I don't, I don't want to be a creature. I want to be the creator. If, if Jesus had said, your flesh needs a little help from now and then, well, I think I'd be okay with that, you know? We all need a helping hand from now, you know, and then. But that's not what he says, is it? What's he say? My flesh, your flesh, our flesh is no help at all. He, he piles up negatives. Or, or as the New King James translates, the flesh profits nothing. So let's think about this. Because you might feel like your flesh is kicking it strong in all sorts of areas of your life right now. Okay, I, I have conversations like this with folks all the time. I I want to believe this about myself all the time. Maybe people respect you or people appreciate you or, or people like you because unlike all the slackers out there, you get stuff done. <laughs> That's why you got the promotion or you got the corner office. but I wonder how your marriage is going, friend. I wonder how your kids are doing. What what about the anxiety in your soul, that, that gnawing sense that if you just slow down the pace the slightest bit, your, your entire world will crumble and fall. Can, can you Quiet the pangs in your conscience. 
can you find a joy that, that endures longer than, than your last achievement or your last purchase or your last high or your, your last sexual release? Can, can you give yourself peace in the midst of death or confidence on the day of judgment or an assurance that it's well with your soul? Can your flesh do that? Can your flesh do any of those things? What, what, what do many of us do when we realize we can't? Well, one of two things, typically. We, we either throw up our hands in despair, or, my preference, we, we busy ourselves with all the things we still feel like we can control. <laughs> Here's what we need to know, friends. Here's, here's what we have to recognize here. What is Jesus saying here? God gave you a flesh that is of no help at all, not to frustrate you, but to lead you back into the joy of dependence on him. That's what's up with giving you a flesh that's of no help at all because joy in a broken world doesn't come from leveraging our power to, to create life for ourselves or others. Joy comes from resting in the Spirit's power and the Spirit's faithfulness to grant what the Spirit alone can provide. Because it's the Spirit that enables us to, to see ourselves clearly that the poverty of our earthly treasures, our, our need for a savior, it's the spirit that enables us to see Jesus clearly, to, to despair of commending ourselves to God and to trust the person and work of Christ to make us right with the Father. The spirit grants us love for our enemies and joy in our poverty and peace in adversity and patience in suffering and kindness under oppression and goodness in the midst of evil and faithfulness when we feel weak and gentleness instead of anger and self-control when all we want in this moment is just to feel better. <laughs> Can your flesh do any of those things? Can your pastor or your Christian friend, or your, or your godly parents, or some guy you watch on TV, can they do any of those things? It's the Spirit who gives life, friends. And, and remembering that, that the Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. What does that do? Listen very carefully. Remembering that, if we can remember that, what will that do? That will guard us from pride, when we feel able and protect us from fear when we realize we're not. I'll say that again. Remembering it's the spirit who gives life will guard us from pride when we feel able and fear when we realize we're not. And it'll make us a people who are at once humble and hopeful. So, so how does the spirit do that? How does he do it? How, how does he take, because he's a person, not an awkward uncle, the Trinity. How does he take our hearts that, that are cold toward God and give us the joy of trusting and obeying Jesus? How does he do it? Well, the spirit does it through the power of Jesus' words. Look back at verse 63. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. They alone bring life, grant life, give life, work life 
in the spiritual realm. The primary means by which the spirit, but think about this, makes all that is wrong in the world right. Okay, starting in our relationship with God is through the power of God's words. That's stunning. When the word of God is preached, the spirit is working. When you open your Bible or flip it open on your phone, I don't recommend that because distractions abound. You know, there's not like a check Facebook post thing in this book, so it's helpful. But when you open your Bible and read, meditate on what Jesus is saying, even when 90% of it confuses you because it was a genealogy with words you couldn't pronounce. And yeah, whatever. This is totally why I don't do this. The Spirit is working. <laughs> okay, the, the Spirit gives us life in Jesus by illuminating and applying the words of Jesus such that we see him for who he is and trust him for who he is and obey him accordingly. Which means God's word doesn't just tell us what's true. It, it actually changes us from the inside out by the spirit. So here's the big question, I think. And Jesus goes here, obviously. How come one person hears or reads God's word and nothing happens? Whereas another person reads God's word and they are convicted and comforted and transformed. You ever even wondered that in your own life? Like yesterday I read the word of God and I felt convicted and comforted and transformed. And then today it's been mm, 24 hours. Today I read the word of God and all I could think about was, well, I don't even know what I thought about, but I certainly wasn't thinking about God. And what happened? Friends, the, the faith necessary to believe Jesus and to perceive Jesus in the words of Jesus is a gift from the Spirit of God. That's what that says. And there are times in our life, even as believers, where the Lord will withhold that experience to remind us of our dependence. And that's good. Lest we think, oh, I got this. My flesh is crushed in this. Now I see how to fix what's wrong in the world around me and in my life. I just have to have a quiet time discipline. Nope. Verse 65, no one can come to me or understand me or find life in me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So did that stop Jesus from boldly proclaiming the gospel in the power of the Spirit? Not at all. Okay, should, should that stop you, Christian, from, from diligently reading and meditating on God's word until you feel this sudden compulsion to do so? Absolutely not. What, what do we do? We trust the power of the Spirit. We rest in the sovereignty of the Father and we persevere in proclaiming and meditating on the truth of Jesus' words. Why do we do that? Because the words of Jesus bring life through the work of the Spirit. Here's the last thing we need to see about Jesus' words. Point three. 
The words of Jesus compel us to remain with Jesus. And my heart as a shepherd has been uniquely burdened by this for the three weeks I've now been preparing this sermon. (laughs) Because at this point, this point in the story, Jesus' followers, most of them at least, they just had enough. They'd had enough. He wasn't giving them the kind of life in this world that they wanted. So look at verse 66. They turned back and what? No longer walked with him. It's easy to miss, but but the very way John describes this makes a profound spiritual point. Notice they didn't just stop following him. Literally translated, they turned away to the behind things. Every single human being on this planet is a worshiper. Okay? We're, we're, we're all looking to something right now, it's kind of scary, to give us joy and life. And, and even when, this is the warning here, even when you are following Jesus or think you're following Jesus, that the temptation to turn back to the behind things, that never goes away. Wait, where did you, be honest, Where did you look for life, friend, if you're a Christian, before you started following Jesus? Just think about that for a second. Where'd you look? Was it work? Or was it sex? Or or did you disappear on YouTube? Or did you you pack your days with as many social events as possible? Or or throw yourself into gaming or into golf? Recognize, here's the warning, recognize the behind things that still hold the most attraction for you and be on guard, okay? Because the fact that you appear to be following Jesus right now does not guarantee that you will continue to follow Jesus in the future. You need to be on guard. And with with Jesus' followers just deserting him in mass, he, he turns to his 12 closest disciples. Look at verse 67 and ask a question that matters just as much today as it did back then. Verse 67, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Do you? He's not asking because he's unsure. The very form of the question, if you read it in the original language, begs and presumes a negative answer. So what's Jesus doing by asking? He's not being coy. He's he's forcing his disciples to give really careful attention to the choice before them. Remember I mentioned that earlier. Jesus leaves us with a choice. I wonder how you would answer him, friend. Maybe you're exploring Christianity or you're just getting to know Jesus. That's a really good thing. But listen, you, you can't avoid making a decision. Okay? And the decision, the choice is, will you humble yourself and follow Jesus or, or will you walk away? 
There's no, there's no middle ground, okay? Jesus leaves neither them nor us any place for some sort of respectable uncertainty or, or understandable indecision to, to postpone your decision, either in your own mind or when people ask you about it, is to make a decision. Either we are for him or against him every single moment of our life. And, and let's be honest, even as Christians, there's a critical sense in which we face that question over and over again. But the choice to follow Jesus, this is the, the warning here, the choice to follow Jesus. It's not a choice that you just make at one point. You know, back in the, when I was in college, God did this amazing thing. And, you know, I kind of signed up for Jesus. And yeah, you know, um, that was good. Now, the, the choice, will you follow him or will you not? That is a choice you face every single moment of your life. Do you, do you click the link or not? Do you go on that date or not? Do you slam the door in mom's face or not? Do you file for divorce or not? Do you share what God has done in your life or not? <laughs> Do you give generously or not? Do, do you close your mouth and let that sibling get the last word or not? Do, do you step outside your comfort zone and risk exposing your weakness to your spouse by confessing your sin to them or not? Will you follow Jesus or will you walk away? And there are times, I, this is why this has uniquely burdened me. There are times in the Christian life where it feels more costly and more painful and, and more difficult and even more risky to remain with Jesus. Okay? Especially when there's a temporal blessing you've been longing for or waiting for from him or earnestly praying for that has been delayed or denied. I think many of you know exactly what I mean. Your, your child dies and you're shaken by all manner of doubts and fears because you believe God is sovereign. Or your financial stress increases <laughs> because you turn down a higher paying job to honor the Lord by spending more time with your wife and your kids. Or, or maybe you struggle with assurance of salvation or, or battling doubts that Jesus is real or the Bible is true. And it feels like it would just be easier emotionally to, to just chuck it all and, and walk away than to persevere in fighting for faith. Or maybe you're in a difficult marriage. And you know you don't have biblical grounds for divorce. And it would be far, far easier emotionally Let's be honest, to follow the advice of your friends who say you deserve better than that than to stay in the relationship for Jesus' sake. In all of those situations, I mean, I, I could just go on. And those are not hypothetical, by the way. What, why? Why on earth should we, should you, choose to remain with Jesus when, when so many longings and affections in our hearts just, just seem to be pulling us? I'm just so tired. I just need a break. I just want comfort. It's just too hard. I mean, it's, that's real, right? When all that, it's just pulling in the opposite direction. Why remain with Jesus? Well, look at verse 66. And 
And then Peter's answer in 68. Peter leads the way here, friends. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Do you realize that's not the voice of resignation? You know, as if Peter wished there was another option. (laughs) You know, but I guess Jesus is the lesser of all the evils. (laughs) No. No, that, that is the humble honesty of faith. That's, that's a sober assessment on Peter's part that recognizes Jesus is the only one who can give life to your soul. Every other gospel is a lie, friend. Every other supposed path to joy makes promises it can't keep. Only Jesus, only Jesus offers what? A righteousness that won't make you arrogant. An identity that doesn't hinge on your performance. A justice that is full of mercy. A freedom that isn't selfish. That the joy of relationship with God who knows you fully and loves you completely. And the promise of a bodily resurrection in a world where sin and death are no more. Only Jesus offers those things, which is why Peter says in Acts when he was preaching one of his first sermons, guys, here's the bottom line. Salvation is found in no one else. And Peter knew that. And the other disciples knew that, save Judas. They, they had believed and had come to know that Jesus was the Messiah, the Holy One of God, that no one else but him could satisfy their souls. But, but that wasn't a pie in the sky thing. Did he say things that offended them? Oh, yeah. Did he do things that troubled them? Absolutely. But, but this they knew. Okay, this they couldn't deny. In Jesus is life. And following Jesus is joy. They had tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Listen, not on account of the temporal blessings that he gives, but on account of who he is. And they knew, they they knew as much as they wish there was an alternative sometimes, they knew as tempting as it was that to turn away from him, to reject him, would be to reject a fountain of living water for a dry cistern in a desert that holds no water. They knew that. How did they come to know that? How did they come to believe that? Well, through the power of Jesus' words. You have the words of eternal life. Praise God for that simplicity. (laughs) Through the power of Jesus' words, words that the Lord has preserved for us in the pages of this book and speaks to us as we open it and read. So if you're struggling to follow Jesus or you're tempted to not remain with Jesus, here's what you need to do, friend. You need to nourish your mind with the word of God. You need to meditate on the word of God. You need to study the word. You need to take your ragged, fearful, disillusioned, borderline unbelieving heart 
and bring it day after day before the word of God. Not because this book is magic, but because this is God's ordained means of revealing himself to us. You you want faith in Jesus to grow? You want to be able to say with Peter, where else can I go? Only you have the words of eternal life. How do you think that's going to happen? You just wake up in your bed one morning and feel that? No. That will come through long-suffering, agonizing faithfulness to mire your soul in the word of God. And if you don't know how to do that, I promise the whole sermon wasn't a setup for this. Come to my Sunday school class next Sunday. (laughs) Okay, for real. Why do you think this is such a burden for me? Because he's the bread of life. And if you don't know that, and you hear a pastor on stage get all excited about that, and you just feel like, wouldn't it be great if that was my experience? It can be, friends. That's the point. It's not a mystery. It's not for the select few or the seminary degreed. If you can read the word of God, and if you are blind and can't read it, if you can hear the word of God, and if you are deaf and all you have, because you're blind too, is the ability to remember the word of God. The Lord Jesus, through his spirit, will use it to give you life. The life we need comes from God alone. It's granted by the Father, given by the Spirit, and found in the Son. And if you hear all that today, and you say, yep, I know it, I agree with it, unlike all these other people around me, I have found life. Well, remember this, because Jesus has this way of knowing we are perpetually tempted to spiritual pride. Verse 70, he implicitly agrees with Peter's confession, but notice what he says. Hey, um, did I not choose you? (laughs) What's his point? Christian, you're a trophy of grace. That's it. In the majesty of his mercy, the sovereign God, your creator, if you have found life in Jesus through his word, why is that? Because he has mercifully and graciously turned your proud heart that would otherwise be offended by the gospel and never come to Jesus, turned it back toward him. That's his mercy. So no matter how hard the road or difficult the way, do not abandon the lover of your soul, Christian. Don't reject the Son of God who died to bring you home. Cling to him, hold fast to him, refuse to look away. Why? Because where else are we going to go? Where else can you find eternal life? Let's pray. Jesus, We want to remain with you. (laughs) Those of us who have tasted and seen that you are good, we say this morning, Lord God, we want to remain with you. But there are also those among us who are listening online who wish they could say that with integrity. 
but no, they cannot yet. And so we also pray, Lord, wherever we are tempted to turn away to the behind things, or wherever the offense of the gospel has kept us from ever coming to you, that as we sang earlier, Spirit of God, give us life. Give us life. Do what only you can do. Do what our flesh can not do one bit. Give us life, Lord. Give us the joy of knowing you, a joy that comes from you, the bread of life that doesn't come from the stuff you give or take away. It comes from you, who you are. Lord Jesus, forgive us where we have flirted with the behind things this week. And we ask that by your spirit, through your word, day after day, you would open our eyes to see that there is one and only one bread of life. And his name is Jesus.